This is a podcast from Bodies of Data, intersecting medical and digital humanities. This Irish Humanities Alliance Conference, a collaboration with University College Dublin and Dublin Institute of Technology, took place in the Royal Irish Academy and in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 22nd and 23rd of November 2018. The conference addressed the emerging discipline of the medical humanities at the intersection between arts and humanities and the biomedicine which explores the social, historical and cultural dimensions to medicine. Podcasting of the conference was by Real Smart Media. In this podcast, the myth of the paedophile as a monstrous stranger in Victorian discourse on child sexual abuse, a paper by Dr. Elise Bulfin from Trinity College Dublin. So, um, I suppose I should start with a warning that some of the subject matter that I'm going to cover today is a little bit difficult um, to essentially um, apologise for taking you through it from that perspective. And also to state that when I'm talking about the, um, I'm going to be talking about the victims of um, child sexual murders in the 1890s as reported in journalism. Um, And it's almost impossible to retrieve anything of the children's perspective in this research, um, given the sources that I have to access it. So um, although the evidence shows us today that most child sexual abuse, or CSA, is perpetrated by family members or people who are well known to the victims, the myth of the paedophile as a lurking stranger is still socially prevalent and distracts social attention from the most uh, common types of abuse. And I kind of apologize for, in some senses, replicating this myth in this this, uh, image that I have here. It was attached to a piece that I wrote in the conversation that summarizes the paper today. Um, and sort of blurs the boundaries, but it shows you how, um, I suppose, iconographic this kind of representation is when we talk about the figure of the paedophile. Um, While the modern concept of CSA as a public health issue uh, considerably post-dates the Victorian period, it has its roots in legal and medical theories concerning the notion of sexual harm to children, which developed in the late 19th century, especially in the new science of sexology. It was also shaped, though, in contemporary sensational journalism, which condensed these theories and disseminated them to a wide audience, abetted, I would say, indirectly by sensational popular tales of crime and horror, and perhaps even Dracula, to read the figure of Dracula through another lens, but that's not for today. Um, This paper shows how the myth of the paedophile as a monstrous stranger developed across this set of intersecting sources. Out of the paradoxical need to acknowledge what was increasingly being recognized as a social problem, the issue of sexual harm to children, um, but at the same time avoiding the unthinkable reality then that children could be abused by family members in respectable middle-class homes. So the paper focuses on the articulation of this myth in the newspaper coverage of a set of child sexual murders from the 1890s, in which the Gothic terminology of monstrosity was deployed to characterize the alleged perpetrators, alongside rhetorical strategies which also distanced them socially. Um, In keeping with the conference theme, I'm also going to discuss the methodological difficulties of doing this kind of work and tracing this material in the digital archives because of the prevalent use um, in the Victorian period of euphemism to denote sexual crime. So to begin then, just by thinking about um, when you're talking about child sexual abuse in a 19th century context, you immediately come up against um, 
issues of definition concerning what constituted a child, a cultural construction in flux over time, and also what constituted abuse, um, with marked differences as well as similarities between how the Victorians viewed these things and how we do. Um, while there was on the one hand what Mara Gubar calls the Victorian cult of the child, which fetishized childhood innocence, um, and we can see this reflected in the ideally idealized portraits of Queen Victoria's children. Um, on the other hand, as Eric Hopkins has shown, childhood was in some senses a middle-class luxury unavailable to or prematurely terminated for the children of the working classes, as you can see um, in the kind of the, the pitiable but still slightly knowing and menacing Victorian child scavenger there, uh, the, the child mudlark. Um, Louise Jackson, who's an author of a key study of CSA in the Victorian period, in fact, really the only study to date, argues that it was this disjunction between the real and the ideal child that allowed the concept of child abuse to develop, and that it extended to the notion of inappropriate sexual attention towards children. She also identifies a journalistic and juridical framing of CSA as a lower class issue of public morality, associated with stereotypes of poverty, slums, prostitution, substance abuse, and poor hygiene. And this facilitated a marked silence then about abuse in, uh, amongst the middle and upper classes. Um, as this paper demonstrates, I hope, the characterization of the perpetrator of sexual crimes against children as a monstrous stranger in 19th century discourse proved an equally powerful strategy for distancing CSA from respectable society, and one with a more enduring legacy in terms of modern myths about CSA. So how was CSA understood? Um, in a, I'm retrospectively applying the term um, to the Victorian period. How, how were these kinds of things understood um, at the period I'm talking about? Legislation encoded what was considered inappropriate sexual behaviour towards female children, the focus was on the female. Um, an 1885 act raised previous age limits to make unlawful carnal knowledge of a girl under 13 a felony and under 16 a misdemeanor. And there was another set of laws which dealt with indecent assault and implicitly included homosexual acts against boys. So the Victorian legal system had some sense of what's now referred to as CSA. Commenting on these understandings of CSA, uh, the historian Philip Jenkins argues that before the 19th century, crimes against children involving sex were a commonplace part of the work of the justice system, but there was no sense of the child-oriented sex criminal as a distinct or particularly menacing type of malefactor. Um, no sense either of CSA as a particular category of crime. So what was crucial to the emergence of these concepts were developments in late 19th century medicine, and which gave le the, the legal understandings of sexual harm to children a scientific basis. The key term paedophilia was coined in 1896 by the renowned German psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing. Uh, it first appeared in English in the translation of his very successful, widely circulating medico-legal textbook, Psychopathia Sexualis. This was the English translation of the seventh edition of this textbook. Um, in this extensive catalogue of sexual perversion, as Kraft Ebbing termed it, and he very liberally included anything that didn't include heterosexual intercourse for the purposes of procreation within marriage. So you can imagine it's a very long book. But within this book, um, 
Pedophilia was defined as a morbid disposition or psychosexual perversion in which the subject is drawn only to the sexually quite immature. Speaking generally of what he called the violation of individuals under the age of 14, which is how Kraft Ebbing understood childhood, uh, he held that these horrible perversions are only possible to a man who is a slave to lust and morally weak. Um, while, he, uh, while he added a typology of abusers to his extended 1903 edition of Psychopathia Sexualis, which allowed for some forms of intrafamilial abuse, overall this edition produced the impression that most abusers were mentally defective or morally degenerate male outsiders. When he came to reflect upon his typology and his work, he ultimately concluded, paradoxically, that to him it seemed impossible for sane individuals to commit such abhorrent acts, though he admitted that this did happen. And he resorted to the, to the term monsters to describe this category of people. It's psychologically incomprehensible that an adult of full virility and mentally sound should indulge in sexual abuses with children. The finer feelings of man revolt at the thought of counting these monsters among the psychically normal members of human society. So in this seminal medical definition, sexual abusers of children were distanced from the family and only rendered legible through the gothic figure of the monster. Um, and while Kraft Ebbing's definition of paedophilia was relatively limited, the connotation of monstrosity has carried through, I would argue, to the capacious current category of the modern paedophile. Now this um, gothic metaphorical gesture recurred periodically in Kraft Ebbing's work and in other contemporary discourse as experts seemed driven to the use of the Gothic when ordinary language failed to capture the full horror of abusive acts against children. Um, for example, in the lengthy sections of Psychopathia Sexualis, which uh, treated of sadism and lust murder, um, and which included several horrific crimes against children, we see this trend recur. The most extreme example was probably the case of the serial murderer Vincenz Verzeni, who abducted, murdered, and cut up 14-year-old Joanna Motta, and who reported deriving a most intense, lustful pleasure from sucking her blood. Um, here, despite attempting to document Verzeni's mental condition in purely clinical terms, Kraft Ebbing eventually resorted to the term modern vampire to describe the obscenity of Verzeni's predilections. Um, and this kind of terminological breakdown is evident in the works of other sexologists of the period, though I don't have time to go into the details, including Charles Chaddock, who translated Ellis in, or, uh, Ebbing into English, um, the French sexologist Alexis Epillard, and also have a look at Ellis, Ellis but when he's uh, translating Lombroso as opposed to in his own work where he's quite restrained. Um, on the other hand, Despite shying away from intrafamilial abuse and resorting to Gothic terminology in the face of extremes, sex, uh, sexology was much more realistic and restrained than <coughs> late 19th century journalism. Um, in a competitive marketplace, journalism produced sensational coverage of both social morality campaigns for child safety and of horrific crimes against children. Um, one of the most notorious child murders of the 19th century was the case in 1867 of eight-year-old Fanny Adams. Um, 
She was abducted by Frederick Baker, a solicitor's clerk, and she was later found cut to pieces in a local field. Um, her genitalia notably were missing. This is not the most horrific of the illustrations that the Illustrated Police News produced. I've spared you the, the, the worst of them. Um, the sensational trial produced, as you can imagine from the illustrations, equally lurid reportage. Just to give you an example from the Illustrated Police, which news which dedicated a whole special issue to the murder, um, it concluded that Baker acted from the madness of badness, when vile and frightful passions sweep sense, self-government and wit away together in a torrent of satanic impulse. Now, while most contemporary testimony avoided the possibility in this case in 1867 of sexual violation, the case was later listed amongst um, his set of child lust murders by Kraft Ebbing. Um, even more lurid, actually, in terms of reportage, was an extended 1885 expose of child prostitution in London by the vociferous social reformer, oh, I beg your pardon, um, W.T. Stead, a very famous, well-known uh, case. In his infamous maiden tribute of modern Babylon articles, Stead documented the booming trade in providing impoverished young girls for violent sexual exploitation, with sensational bylines like the violation of virgins, how girls are bought and ruined, the London slave market, give you a flavour of the, the sensationalist melodramatic tack that Stead took. But Stead was quite clear in his reportage that it was sexual criminality against children that he was documenting, as opposed to the lesser sexual immorality of adult prostitution. Um, as is very well known, the ensuing public outrage sparked by Stead's articles resulted in the passing of stalled legislation to raise the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16. So they had a very quick and immediate public effect. When you look at the text of the articles themselves, you see that one of Stead's central rhetorical strategies was to use the monstrous metaphor of the London Minotaur to convey the um, collective depravity of the sexual trade in children. He also referred to London's most notorious individual abuser, an individual he claimed to have tracked through the London underworld, um, as a modern minotaur, a monster who may be said to be an absolute incarnation of brutal lust who was stalking the city's subterranean realm. Now, Stead's key premise was that the trade in children thrived on the secret depravity of many outwardly respectable gentlemen. But his minotaur figure actually worked against this by making the abusers into lurking monsters. So in this way, Stead helped to establish the myth that becomes the key discursive mechanism underpinning the enduring social disavowal of intrafamilial CSA, that of the CSA perpetrator as a monstrous stranger stalking the city streets for prey. Now, while the Fanny Adams, cases, Adams case and the Maiden Tribute case have received considerable critical attention, a group of child sexual murders from the 1890s have been almost completely overlooked and were even at that time overshadowed by the notorious Whitechapel murders. During this period, the police and court sections of the newspapers included steady low-key reporting on sexual crimes, usually against young girls, usually described in euphemistic codes as outrages or indecent assaults, and usually involving domestic abuse. Only the most extreme cases received widespread coverage. And beginning with the West Ham murder in 1890, in which 
15-year-old Amelia Jeffs was abducted, violently raped and murdered and concealed in the cupboard of a vacant house. Newspaper reports adjudged it a diabolical crime of bestial brutality. They conceived of the assailant as a monster and a man of diabolical appearance, even though there was actually no suspect. Um, they also made a sensational and unsubstantiated links to other disappearances of children in the neighborhood previously. Equally horrific was the Barnet murder of 1895, in which Lydia Hills, a little girl of eight, suffered a similar fate, the coverage again emphasizing the purported assailant's attempts to lure other children away. Um, I don't have an illustration of this one, but also covered extensively in 1893 was the double murder in Oxfordshire of two little girls aged seven and five, one of whom was sexually assaulted and mutilated. Now, the more sensational newspapers claimed in this case that the accused was much affected by the Whitechapel murders and hoped to be a Jack the Ripper. Um, and even a sober court report adjudged the crime an inhuman murder so wicked and terrible that an ordinary man could not have done it. So what this analysis of the reportage shows is that the journalists, like the medical professionals, struggled to find suitable terminology to convey the brutality of the acts. And they resorted, too, to the familiar Gothic cliches of monstrosity. Of course, they had the added motivation of sensationalizing in order to sell copy. Um, but unlike the Fanny Adams case, by the 1890s, these murders were reported as sexual crimes, despite the fact that they pertained to child victims. They were understood as lust murders of the type documented by Kraft Ebbing, even though the sexual aspects were denoted via euphemistic codes. And at this point, it's probably a good idea just to step back and discuss then the methodological difficulties of carrying out this kind of work. Because sexuality was a taboo subject, it was difficult to discuss sexual harm to children, even in factual discourse. Um, and so, as well as gothicizing, uh, using gothic language to kind of evade giving details, um, there was also a set of widely understood euphemistic codes which means it's hard to find these articles in the newspapers. So the contemporary terms rape and incest, even though they were used in the 19th century, they almost never make it into print. And the term sexual abuse really only existed in medical texts at this point. So the key euphemism used was outrage. Um, and so you, you can see instances of it here, assault, shocking, outrage, outraged her, etc. So you end up searching for things like outrage plus uh, girl, child, boy, girl of, girl aged. Um, you'll also see misdemeanor, indecency, depravity, and so on. So I initially found these terms in the courts and police sections of the papers. Um, and then I was able to, to use them to find where you'd got coverage that actually made it out of those sections where it's briefly treated and, be, and, and formed the basis of headlines, typically only in the more extreme cases of stranger-committed violent sexual murder. That's typically only where you get a kind of a dissemination of reportage. So I know this isn't really big data per se, but it might be possible to plug these terms into the Contagion project um, at some stage the fiction data set and see what that could reveal about coded fictional representations of child sexual abuse. Because if it was difficult to talk about it in factual discourse, fiction offered pretty much no scope to do so except perhaps metaphorically.
Returning to the 1890s murders and how they were covered at the time, they all merited dramatic front page illustrations in the notoriously sensationalist illustrated police news. Um, these illustrations tended to focus on two key moments, the abduction of the child and the finding of the body. Um, as we can see here in the panel called The Child is Lured Away, and here the father finds the body of his child. Or in the uh, West Ham case, it's, it's smaller, but you can see um, a man dragging a girl along down there in the bottom, and then the finding of the little victim as, as the center bottom panel there. Um, these illustrations arguably foreground the victim's vulnerability um, and they demonstrate the strong emotional charge to the newspaper accounts, which was largely absent from the perpetrator-focused medico-legal discourse. And there's a clear emphasis as well on the victim's innocence. Um, you can see the sort of the pale face there of the victim vis-a-vis -vis the dark perpetrator figure. I think I have a close-up of that. Yeah, you can see it better here. The dark figure of the man and the pale-faced girl, and you see the same here, the kind of the shadowy, unkempt perpetrator figure luring over the um, innocent, uh, radiantly depicted little girl. And actually, these enduring visual tropes um, continue to circulate in the modern uh, horror and crime genres, just to give you a very quick example of the same kind of um, iconography in terms of shading there between um, the perpetrator and the victim in that film poster. But as well as demonizing and gothicizing the perpetrators, the 1890s coverage tried to distance them socially. Um, in sexology, they were distanced typically in terms of mental or moral uh, characteristics. But in the papers, it was the kind of habitual Victorian association of criminality with poverty that was used to distance them. So in the Barnett case, reports described repeatedly the accused as a rough-looking laborer without fixed abode. And this was even following the public clarification that he was, and I'm quoting, a man of superior education from a very respectable family, but of weak intellect. And you can see this here in the illustration quite clearly. Um, as well, if I go back to the full illustration, um, the father of the child appears here very socially respectable, whereas in fact he's described as an ailing coal dealer or lamplighter in the reportage, and not this kind of respectable middle-class looking gentleman we have here. Um, in the Oxfordshire case, the accused was characterized as a heavy-drinking, irregularly employed laborer, recently dismissed from respectable employment on account of his eccentricities. Um, and despite the damning nature of this coverage, he too was acquitted, um, and in a manner which further demonstrates the explanatory power of the stranger myth. The defence lawyer's strategy actually involved countering the journalistic othering of the accused. The defence lawyer argued, quite incorrectly, um, that his status as an ordinary local man known to the children meant he couldn't be the requisite inhuman monster capable of such uh, unparalleled barbarities. Um, I'll skate over the Jeffs case because actually um, the, the suspect there was thought to be the developer of the Rove houses where she was found and so it doesn't really fit the, the profile um, quite as much. But in each case, in the absence of a convincing suspect, the journalistic coverage made extensive use of a class-inflected version of the stranger myth to impose a comprehensible narrative upon the horrific sequence of events, contributing, I would argue, to the myth's circulation in process in the process. So to conclude, um, 
From what I've been discussing, I think we can see that many of the problematic behaviours that currently fall under the heading of CSA were acknowledged social issues in the late 19th century, and they received a considerable amount of attention in the public sphere. But the notion of sexual harm to children wasn't easy to address head-on, even in the factual treatments of the subjects, and it tended to be disassociated from respectable society and referred to indirectly. Public attention was directed towards extreme crimes of abduction and sadism, and suspicion frequently displaced onto social outsiders who were distanced in terms of class and mental health. Much writing about sexual harm to children tended to address it obliquely, using the dark metaphors of the Gothic. In this way, the figure of the monster could be used to stand in for the perpetrator of sexual crimes against children, with the result that the paedophile came to be portrayed not just as a social outsider, but also essentially as a monstrous stranger. Um, and so while 19th century sexology, in one sense, it, it helped us to understand the problem of sexual harm as a discrete social issue, when combined with sensational popular journalism, it nonetheless gave birth to an enduring detrimental, detrimental myth, which continues to uh, influence public understandings of CSA. Um, then, as now, this cultural construction played a powerful role in distracting attention from the most common types of abuse and exculpating wider society by displacing the blame onto the aberrant individual. And just to give you a flavor of that, we can see it here again in uh, the Freddy Krueger film poster where Krueger, the ultimate kind of monster, was originally conceived of as a child molester. And that's made explicit in the 2010 remake. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Bodies of Data, intersecting medical and digital humanities. This Irish Humanities Alliance conference, a collaboration with University College Dublin and Dublin Institute of Technology, took place in the Royal Irish Academy and in University College Dublin Humanities Institute on the 22nd and 23rd of November 2018. For more information on the Irish Humanities Alliance, go to irishhumanities.com.